Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret's just-arrived collection of swim and other sun-ready silhouettes. Pack your bags with new styles from the Very Sexy Collection, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy push-up bra, in on-trend hues like green and citron and black shine. Rewind to the future with the VS Archives Swim Collection, inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. Plus, mix and match with their wide range of bikini tops and bottoms to find your dream suit. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Inventing Anna, the official podcast, is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. Welcome to Inventing Anna, the official podcast, your exclusive look inside the making of the Shondaland series on Netflix. I'm your host, Stacey Wilson-Hunt, and today we are dropping into a fascinating conversation between series creator and executive producer Shonda Rhimes and journalist Jessica Pressler, who wrote the 2018 New York Magazine article that Shonda adapted into Inventing Anna. But Jessica didn't just hand off her story to Shondaland. Her close collaboration with Shonda was vital to the creation of the series. These two powerhouses connected recently for an exclusive one-on-one chat about what drew Shonda to Jessica's story what Jessica thinks of the series, their theories about Anna Delvey, and much more. Here we are, Jessica. Hi. Finally talking about this whole gigantic project that started with your article. I'm excited. Do I get to ask questions now? Because I feel like we've had a role reversal where... I know it does feel a little bit like a role reversal, but no, here's what I think. We should just have a conversation. I'm certainly not going to try to be the reporter interviewing you. I did want to start by just asking you, you're like the expert on this topic as far as I'm concerned. Oh my gosh. You're like the Anna expert. So I wanted you to set the stage for us in time, like for people who don't know, like what was the summer of scam? What was the summer of scam? Okay. So we go back to a time long before COVID when Donald Trump was president and the fire festival was in the news and everybody was laughing about that cheese sandwich and um, bad blood had just come out with the Elizabeth Holmes story about Theranos. And Anna kind of slid in and was the kind of the third thing that made the summer of scam a trend, like a bona fide trend. We've kind of been living with this, the scammy culture for a long time before that. And, um, I think that there was something kind of like relieving in a way to have the summer of scam because it, you know, the the Trump scam was so serious <laughs> and then right. fire festival and then Anna, it was just like, it was kind of like you got to laugh at the, at the scamminess of the culture a little bit. It kind of just brought the whole, you know, everybody's kind of faking it thing kind of to the forefront of the conversation. And then it went on for like a year, the whole summer. <laughs> Yeah, it was the longest summer ever. (laughs) It was a really long summer. It felt like it allowed you to laugh at a lot of the ridiculousness of like Instagram culture or like sort of covetousness of wealth. But at the same time, 
the airs that people put on. I mean, with the Theranos thing, the airs that people put on, the way people pretended to be something they weren't. Everybody sort of reveled in it, I remember. Like, I remember it was all, any, all those three topics, Anna, Theranos, Fire Festival, it was all anybody was talking about for the longest time. Yes. You know what it was? It was really like the end of an era in some ways. I think it was like the end of kind of that like techie, slogany, we work mm-hmm. that happened around the same time. This whole kind of like buzzy, kind of silly internet culture, it, it felt like that was kind of like an end point to that. Like we recognized that we'd been living in this weird Silicon Valley created filtered world where everybody was kind of... um you know, not quite themselves and posing as somebody else in some strange way online and things like that. It was all a very made-up world. And speaking of made-up worlds, like, why don't we talk about the creative liberties that the show took, well, that I took, with Vivian's interactions with her bosses? Because when I read your story about Anna in the cut, it was clear to me, and I think it was clear to anybody who read the article, that it was an incredibly fascinating story that deserved to be told. But in the series, I have Vivian sort of going head to head with her bosses, Paul and Landon, like just trying to get permission to tell the story. But in reality, was it easy for you to get buy-in from your bosses to write about Anna or did you have to fight for it? Yeah. I mean, the show is a dramatized version for sure. Yeah. You misled me. She's supposed to be on the Wall Street Me Too story. Can we talk about that, though? She can't just assign herself stories and and brag about it like she knows best. I don't brag. How can you justify doing that story? It definitely wasn't a no-brainer, like, easy sell. I mean, doing a big story about a non-famous person in general is actually kind of a difficult thing to get into a, a you know a 7 to 10,000 word story about a non-famous person is is a hard sell a little bit um i don't wouldn't say that i went to rikers in secret i kind of um just went <laughs> you know no one was really keep, kind of keeping track of where i was <laughs> but I, I, they would have encouraged me to do that if they did know but yeah i mean that's pretty much my answer to it is that there was understandable reluctance to my wanting to do to devote a lot of time to a feature about a non-famous person. I mean, I definitely think that I took advantage of dramatic license in terms of trying to tell a story about what happens when you have a story you want to tell and your boss doesn't want you to tell it. I mean, otherwise, we wouldn't have had the conflict that we needed to have in order to tell the story. And Vivian wouldn't have been the hero that she was. You know what I mean? Like, Obviously, Jessica's a great reporter, but I needed to amp it up a little bit. At Wall Street Me Too was real, though. That was real. They did want me to do a Wall Street Me Too story, and I did react in pretty much that way. You did. You reacted in pretty much that way. And I that speech that I wrote for her where she says, I don't want to use these women for clickbait, that whole idea of why you didn't want to do Wall Street Me Too, that I got from you. Vivian? What can you possibly have against the women of Wall Street proclaiming Me Too? Nothing, but the women of Wall Street are not proclaiming Me Too. They are scared to death for their jobs and seeing therapists and trying to cope with handsy assholes. And you want to launch a woman journalist grenade at them to bully them into telling their stories for public consumption until these women are traumatized and their careers are pulverized to shit. I'm not against the women. I'm against you using them for clickbait. Because I was, I was like, why isn't Wall Street Me Too a good story? And you were like, because it's our Jody and Jody and Rowan and those guys have already done this. Here's why Wall Street Me Too is not a good idea. I don't want to mind these women's lives for clickbait. And I was like, that's brilliantly smart about why not to do it. So there was stuff that was super 
on target that I got literally directly from you. And then there was the stuff that like, like the idea that you were sneaking around and doing your job, like against your boss's will, dramatic license. Yeah. Like I also would never have asked for the money to go to the Hamptons. I would have just submitted the receipts afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) Which is very smart. But we had to have you have interactions, you know, we had to have you have interactions with your bosses. The other thing that was real was sort of the description of a place called Scriberia. I don't know, the people itself who were in Scriberia weren't real, but the idea of Scriberia as being like a spot in the offices. Scriberia is absolutely real. That is a real place. It was a real place. Yep. I love that so much. <laughs> I think people are pretty happy about that. Overall, I would say that like those are not our former bosses. They're totally different people. But there was like a spiritually correct. That was pretty much how it went. <laughs> right. I like that. I like that. It wasn't factually correct. Yeah, it's, it's emotionally correct. <laughs> right. I think that was the idea. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that my goal was ever to make a documentary right. about Jessica Pressler and what it was like to report the story. As a matter of fact, I think I pretty much promised you I wouldn't be making a documentary <laughs> about what it was like to report the story because you know, you're a journalist trying to do your job and you didn't sign up to be a character in a show. And I think you were a little bit reluctant when I was like, Vivian's going to be like a big part of the show. I remember you being like, okay. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely was like, okay, like you think that now, but you're going to write her out of it later. (laughs) (laughs) Not so much. I, I understood why it was happening. And especially because one of the writers came to the courthouse like on one of the first days of the trial and we were all there acting mm-hmm. like absolute lunatics like in front of this writer so like, I, I was like okay I get, <laughs> I get why they think this is a good idea like there's some really kind of wacky stuff happening right now yeah but I definitely thought until probably the very last minute that the journalist character was going to get cut <laughs> no I mean also we needed a way in Right. We needed a way in to understand this unknowable person and to understand all the different points of view going into it, to interview all those people, to to step into all of those shoes. I felt like you really needed somebody. And you also needed somebody who you trusted in a world in which you have an unreliable narrator like Anna. You needed somebody that you were going to trust no matter what. And Vivian was going to be that person. I'm not your friend. You don't need to like me. I'm a journalist. I want something from you. I want this story. In return, I can give you what you want. Everybody else had a motive in the game. They had some skin in the game. And Vivian didn't have any skin in the game. She was a journalist. Yeah, I I was kind of trying to figure it out. And, and kind of dragged you guys on that journey with me in some ways. <laughs> you did. It was kind of great. Yeah, it was, um, it was strange. You know, usually when you're reporting one of these stories, it sort of like circles back on itself. Like you start hearing the same thing from people and, and you kind of know that it's done when, when you stop hearing new stuff. But this was just like I kept getting new stuff even after the story was published. Like people would call me and tell me about some experience that they had had or their friend had had. And it was just like this endless series of anecdotes about crazy stuff, like the time that she lived with me and sent me a dead peacock in the mail. (laughs) 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 
I love the peacock. Yeah. The stories did keep expanding. And what was great was we were already in the writer's room. We were already working, you know, already working on the stories. And not only were we doing it while the trial was unfolding, but before that, like you went to Germany while we were writing in the writer's room working and you were like saying like, oh my God, I discovered this or oh, I found that. It was just fascinating to be in the middle of that process while you were sort of still reporting and still researching. Yeah. Let's talk about the fact that um, we did make this into a series and that I was like, hey, you know, what about this article? I want to make it into a series. What did you think at first? I mean, you'd already had an experience with Hustlers. So were you like really open to the idea? Were you reluctant? Were you not sure how you want to, you know, that you wanted to do it again? What made you think like, yeah, I'm cool with turning this into a series? Well, I didn't really feel like there was a a choice, frankly. Um, It was like a kind of insane situation where um, it was going to happen. Someone was going to do it. Mm. It wasn't entirely my decision. New York Magazine, it was part of their decision too. Yeah, so it was going to happen. Somebody was going to make a show or a movie about this. And for me, it just kind of became about like, okay, if you're going to use like the characters that I brought into it, then it should be the correct person to, you know, write a Neff or a a Casey or um, a Todd Spodek. So when you came, it was like, oh, thank God. (laughs) I felt so excited and felt so, um, we had these sort of video interviews with Todd and with Neff and with Casey and even with Anna in the writer's room. I mean, Anna, you just went to Rikers and you interviewed her for us. But but what was amazing about that was we all felt this huge amount of responsibility to like portray these people in a way that felt respectful and honorable because they're real people. And I know like as a journalist, I mean, that's literally your job. And so how did it feel to you to see them turned into characters, turned into television characters. Yeah. I mean, looking back at this, like the fact that Hustlers was happening at the same time definitely had like kind of a big effect on that because Hustlers, you know, started shooting right when Anna's trial happened. Like it was almost the same day that the writer's room opened. Hustlers started shooting. And the women in that, the real women, you know, were texting me because they were seeing pictures, you know, of Constance Wu in like thigh high boots and, and reacting to it and, you know, being like, we never wore boots like that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no one was unhappy. Everyone was excited. It was just kind of like a, it's hard to explain. Like many years ago, I interviewed Michael Lewis when they were in the middle of making Moneyball, the movie. And some of the real people were there. And, and he was like, yeah, they're all really scared because, you know, a hundred thousand people at best read a magazine article, but like forty million people see a movie, and people who don't have any context for you as a human being, that becomes who you are. Like the person on the screen becomes who you are. Mm-hmm. So I kind of was thinking about that, and Hustlers was a pretty intense thing because that was um, you know, something terrible that these women did that they had gotten past, and now there was going to be a movie about it. And that was a very intense experience for them. And like, so kind of like wanting to like kind of stick around and like they kind of needed somebody to talk to about that. And it's it's not something you can talk to your friends about. Yeah. It's not like a relatable problem. 
<laughs> to be like, I'm being played by a pop star in a movie. They're making a movie about me. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that that like very much affected kind of how I approached this with these guys too. I was like, okay, like we're all like in this together and we're going to be like, you know, I'm going to like listen to you complain about things if you need to complain about them. And, and I cared very much about who was going to tell their story. It, it was for me, it was like, that's been like the forefront of my mind, like kind of being like, okay, this is going to be how people perceive these people possibly forever. <laughs> it's kind of a big deal. But it is a big deal. And when you put it like that, you know, you want these people to be perceived well. For me, what was interesting is, you know, I don't know, like I fell in love with who Neff was just by like reading the articles and what she had to say. That woman is so interesting and so complex and so funny. And some of the things that came out of her mouth, I just thought they were just brilliant. But her observations were also really interesting and really great and really three-dimensional. And I felt the same way about Casey Duke, who was couldn't be more different than Neff. You know, like these women were fascinating to me. And I wanted to capture them in a way that felt like it honored who they were. And then, you know, you throw in Todd, who is Todd but isn't Todd at all in the show. But you want to honor them. And even Rachel, who wasn't really part of the project, but you want to honor that because, you, first of all, you never want to destroy or demean or write a woman badly. You want to make sure that everybody feels three-dimensional and you can sort of walk in their shoes. But it was really an interesting process to write all of these people and their sides of their story. Yeah. Especially Anna. It was hard because you, you both needed to judge her and not judge her at the same time. And it's a tough one. Exactly. Yeah. And she's very, she's a, a complicated person. And I think definitely unknowable in some ways. I mean, she created a persona to not be known. So <laughs> it's hard to, to get to know her. I, mean, I feel like I do in some ways and in other ways I, I don't know her at all. But yeah, I, I did like uniquely, you know, adore all of those people. <laughs> They're really, really fantastic characters in real life. Um, you spent a lot of time with all of them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think Neff, like, was the story for me, like, because I was having a hard time getting to know Anna when I was writing the magazine story. I didn't understand it. And then I met Neff, and she was just being Neff, like, telling the story about meeting Macaulay Culkin or possibly not Macaulay Culkin. It's, it's in fact debated, although Neff maintains that it was Macaulay Culkin. Um, I should just say disclaimer that messages on Macaulay Culkin's cell phone were not returned. So I did attempt to check that fact. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, she was just such a fantastic character that I literally labeled the interview with her and her boyfriend at the time, like the best people in the world. They were just so much fun to talk to. And I mean, Anna always said she uh, created a great team, so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, everyone, it's about that time. Just a quick message from our sponsors. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret. 
pack your bags with dust-arrived swim, cover-ups, corset tops, and other sexy silhouettes. When the sun goes down, opt for bold and blingy styles, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy Push-Up Bra from the Very Sexy Collection, in on-trend hues like Black Shine, Green, and Citron. For a glam statement, pair them with your favorite jeans and bring the heat. Because life is better in a bikini. Rewind to the future with the VS Archive Swim Collection inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. For endless out-of-office options, mix and match with Victoria's Secret's wide range of bikini tops and bottoms that offer you every type of coverage, from full to cheeky to minimal. And now, in this season's must-have shades and patterns, add the finishing touch with the limited-edition Bombshell Escape fragrance, a free-spirited take on the iconic Victoria's Secret scent. Dive into a vibrant blend of juicy guava, lush palms, and summer glow peony. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. And now we're back to the interview. Okay, so you came out to L.A. and you visited the Shondaland Inventing Anna writer's room. And I'm really curious to know what you made of that visit. (laughs) It was very surreal and I immediately attempted to forget all about it completely. Um, My picture was on the wall and I was like trying to act normal about that (laughs) Um, (laughs) and feeling like really strange that like there was a room where like I was like disgust. It had to be weird because you were in a room full of people who were like basically your super fans. Like everybody in that room was obsessed with you. But not me. (laughs) No, with you, because we'd been basically living off of the Bible of Jessica Pressler says, you know, Jessica Pressler says that this is how something is reported. Jessica Pressler says that this is how Rikers works. Jessica Pressler says. Oh, my God. So it was like this room of Jessica Pressler acolytes who were like, oh, Jessica Pressler is actually with us. It was a big deal. In a good way. Really weird. <laughs> well, you know, I think it was like, I think I've said this to you before, like it was like healthy for me to like go through that experience because I, you know, ask people to do that all the time. Like, you know, give me your like story and let me like make a TV show out of it and, and or, you know, let me make an article out of it. But yeah, that's really crazy. I, can't. <laughs> I still kind of can't believe it's a real thing. Like I remember Jessica saying to me, like Google never forgets. And so the room would constantly just be like, Google never forgets. Remember Jessica said that. Google never forgets. Like there would just be these things that you'd say that like became like the words that we lived by. And for a writer making a show, it was great to have an actual living, breathing source to speak to. Right. You know, I'd had that on Scandal, but in a different way because, you know, Scandal was just inspired by a person, but you were actually inspired by a person, but about a certain particular event. So it was like, call Jessica and ask her to tell you what it's like to go to Rikers. And I get this very detailed thing about what it's like to go to Rikers. And the audience doesn't get to see this, but I wrote like a 10 page scene about going to Rikers. And they shot this thing that's like 
when edited together was like 30 minutes long about exactly what Jessica said it was like to go to Rikers. And I swear to you, like it, it's perfect. Like I loved it so much and I wanted to keep it in the show so badly. I kept trying to find ways to keep this like 30 minute Rikers oh my gosh. visit in because of all the buses and everything. But, you know, even the lady with glitter eyeshadow and the sign that says you can hug your kids, like all of those little details that you gave really built the show for us. They also had the murder wall. Like, I didn't have the pictures on the wall, but they actually did have that in the writer's room. <laughs> yeah. That's their detail. We did. We did have the wall with everyone's photos on them. And we had the crazy, crazy timeline. Right. We had the whole thing. And we were obsessed with it. You didn't have that in your apartment, in your baby's nursery. I didn't. No, I, no, I didn't. <laughs> I had, like, spreadsheets, which were way less cool. Real people have spreadsheets. Spreadsheets never work on television shows. You have to have like some sort of taping up on a wall situation somehow in order for it to be like a big visual thing. The internet stuff is hard. That's another thing that I feel like the show does really well. Like you guys integrate the Instagram posts and the and the internetiness and the texts. We tried really hard with that because of how important Instagram was to the concept of of image. Do you know what I mean? Like the image of who Anna was. And also the idea of Anna's courtroom Instagram fashion thing. Like we really needed to figure out ways in which to make the Instagram work for us. And I know people probably ask you this all the time, but was there like a thing that, you know, before we ever started talking, like that drew you to Anna character in particular? It was the article. I'm telling you. The article was so brilliantly written. It was beautifully written. It painted such a clear picture. It almost felt like a show into itself, like you could read it and see the whole thing in your mind. That's what really drew me in immediately. It wasn't necessarily Anna herself. It was the world that you'd created for us that explained to us who Anna was and what was going on. And it made me want to delve deeper. Mm. The way the article lays out is it's really clear to me that you need a Neff piece and a Casey piece and a Rachel piece. But as you look at it more, and then as I, you know, started talking to you, I began to realize, well, you know, I'm going to tell this through the eyes of a journalist in order to get all the pieces of the story. And then there are these little pieces of story that you can't really just fold into one of those characters, you know, like the, what did you call him in the article? The character that we call Chase. The futurist. The futurist. Mm -hmm. And I was like, we have to find a way to capture the futurist. Um, and how are we going to do that? And how are we going to capture the, the, <laughs> the stuffed peacock story, which I thought was just an amazing story that had to be told. So once we started thinking about those things, it really became about like finding who the interviewee would be so that we could lay the stories out in a way that allowed us to tell all the pieces of Anna's story so that they made sense. For instance, like the financial part, the Wall Street part was hard because we, we had to kind of invent our way into telling that story correctly. Using the pieces of your story, the pieces that you told us about financial, the financial crimes and the financial reporting to get in there and figure out a way to tell these stories. That's why it became about telling it through the eyes of the reporter. Like telling it through Vivian's eyes gave me a way into every last person's story in a way that made it possible to have 
differing narratives to jump around a little bit to everything did not necessarily need to match up because Vivian was gathering in, you know this information. It also allowed us to slowly build the relationship between Vivian and Todd, which I really wanted to do. I thought their friendship was so great and so interesting. Um, I wanted to portray like a good marriage, which I thought was important. You know, you see these shows and you have these characters and their marriages are always like either the guy's a jerk or he's kind of useless or whatever. And I just wanted to portray like, here's what a good marriage looks like where a woman is really into her job and her husband's actually comfortable with her power. My husband loves that character. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I'm glad because I wanted him to be somebody who like you want to be married to him. Like you want somebody to be want to be married to him. And the other thing is, is I don't know if people in our audience know this, but Jessica was pregnant. She really was like super pregnant while trying to report the story. And like you said to me, like I finished the article because I had to have the baby. Right. And I loved that. For some reason, that detail like blew my mind. I just thought like that is the ultimate badass thing. And I really wanted to put it in a show. And I got so excited by that. I mean, you weren't, let's be clear. She wasn't Vivian, like super like reluctant to have a kid, not that interested in being a mother. Like none of that was true. I think you already had a child, right? Yes, yes. This is my second child. Yeah. But I just, I loved the idea of somebody like reporting right up to the minute that they're basically like leaving to give birth. It just sounded so badass to me. And I wanted to put that in the show. So a lot of the things that you told me after we met ended up being sort of how we shaped the show into its segments, mainly because it helped me build the timeline. The Germany episode, the going to Germany, California, that whole episode was really interesting because it was the aftermath. It was how do we tell the story of what happens after the article is published? How do we get ourselves to the trial? Right. I was super impressed with how you guys structured it because I do feel like I just gave you like stuff from my handbag. It was like, here's like a raisin and three quarters and like some gum wrappers. Like I just kind of gave you all this like <laughs> random stuff and uh, you put it together in such an unbelievably uh, clever way. Did you guys... The funny thing about like real life, I remember saying this to like one of the writers is that it, you know, it doesn't end, right? So it's really hard to find an ending point. Was that like a challenge for you guys to kind of come up with with how to like wrap it up? It was really hard to figure out how to end it. I remember we had a 10th episode planned for a while where Anna went to prison and all the things that happened, a whole bunch of stuff that happened to Anna in prison and Vivian visiting her in prison and then choosing to stop visiting her. What was interesting was it felt like where we ended felt right. You know, with the last interaction between Vivian and Anna felt right to me. You'll come visit. No touching. You'll come visit. I'll visit. But also like that moment on the bus felt right. She's headed off to like a whole other series of events in parts unknown, and it's not going to be that good. It's not going to be great. And I don't know, to me, like it felt like that was the best place to end it. And when I called you, I think, I don't know if people know this, but you're the person who gave the where are they nows. Oh, yeah. You gave me the where are they nows, remember, <laughs> that we put at the end of, end of the series. Because who else to ask but 
<laughs> the journalist, like, where is everybody now? And you gave me these where are they nows that were so helpful because you wanted to know where everybody ended up and how everybody ended up. And you could have kept going. I mean, there was so much more we could have done with these characters. We could have kept going for a while. And so it did feel right to just stop when we did. But it was hard to decide when. There's much more to the story coming up right after this. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret. Pack your bags with just-arrived swim, cover-ups, corset tops, and other sexy silhouettes. When the sun goes down, opt for bold and blingy styles, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy Push-Up Bra from the Very Sexy Collection, in on-trend hues like Black Shine, Green, and Citron. For a glam statement, pair them with your favorite jeans and bring the heat. Because life is better in a bikini. Rewind to the future with the VS Archive Swim Collection, inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. For endless out-of-office options, mix and match with Victoria's Secret's wide range of bikini tops and bottoms that offer you every type of coverage, from full to cheeky to minimal. And now, in this season's must-have shades and patterns, add the finishing touch with the limited-edition Bombshell Escape fragrance, a free-spirited take on the iconic Victoria's Secret scent. Dive into a vibrant blend of juicy guava, lush palms, and summer glow peony. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. Okay, everybody, welcome back to Inventing Anna, the official podcast. Here's a question. Because we were talking about the journalism of the piece. What do you feel like Inventing Anna got like wrong about showing how journalism works for people? Like, if you were an aspiring journalist and you watched Inventing Anna and you thought, like, that's what being a journalist is like, what did we get wrong? You know, it, it would be hard for me to to point to something that you got wrong. Even when I, I would say, like, maybe, oh, I didn't have these, like, friends who were helping me who had the time to, like, kind of do some research for me. That's true. But it was also not true because I did have these, like, researchers in Germany that I, like, PayPal to, like, do some research for me. And we did, like, have <laughs> some, like, so even, like, that is a little bit true. I mean, I think that... There are different kinds of journalists, and most journalists are not long-form staff writers at magazines. Like, it's almost right. like I had, like, the last job, like, one of the last jobs like that in the world. So that it wouldn't be, like, super recognizable to a lot of working journalists. Like, I would have to be doing a lot more blog posts and mm. kind of a lot more, like, content churn. But that's very typical of, like, TV stuff. It's like, yeah, you can't, like, like, but there's not like an episode where I'm like writing a blog post. It's kind of boring, <laughs> you know, or like, you know, being on Slack. Like you can't put Slack into it constantly. It's like. You can't. So the show paints Vivian, our journalist in the show, as being sort of super concerned about Anna and as someone who has a really hard time remaining neutral in her role as a journalist. But for you, like in real life, how hard was it to maintain that objectivity with the subject of your story? And how concerned were you about maintaining that objectivity in real life? Oh, wow. Um, I mean, I can get into the weeds on this one. I think Vivian is a lot more concerned about that than I am personally. <laughs> the stuff that we're talking about that she gets worried about is like the courtroom stuff where she's like buying the clothes for her at trial. 
I'm in court. I can't leave to go shopping. I can't participate in Anna's defense. That would be unethical, crossing a line journalistically. Well, I'm a fucking guy. Can you at least tell me what fucking pantyhose were to the fuck out of Alexa? Rose, you think pantyhose What's is going to be the best thing I know pantyhose? Fuck, fine. At that exact moment, I was not reporting on the story. I wasn't doing what she's doing, which is covering the trial. So she's in a slightly different situation. But I would say, like, in general, again, it's like a little bit of a different kind of journalism. Like, it's not like I work at the New York Times and I'm doing breaking news. Like, I worked at New York Magazine. It has this history of of narrative style reporting of first person of, you know, gay Talese and like Joan Didion, like, you know, going to parties with people, you know, it's it's a certain type of journalism. We're allowed to have feelings, we're allowed to have opinions, we're allowed to vote in elections. <laughs> Unlike a lot of political journalists, I know. And what I think is so interesting about the show, one of the things that's so great, it, it does a thing that I haven't seen before, that you guys kind of got the kind of like emotional aspect of working on these stories. I haven't really seen that, I don't think, anywhere. Like that it takes like an emotional toll to work on these kinds of stories and to get really close to people. They're like in your life. You do get close to them. And I, the whole thing about objectivity, I, I just never really, I don't really believe that. Like I, like it's almost like you can't deny that you're a person or that you have thoughts or that like just because I like somebody that I'm reporting on, it doesn't change the truth or the facts of the story. So I don't know how necessary objectivity is. Like I'm not going to, I know myself, like I'm not going to leave something out of a story because I like somebody or because it reflects badly on me because the job is kind of to like write what happened. And if you're kind of forcing this objectivity upon yourself, it's almost like you're starting out from like a weird place of like untruth because you're like denying that you're a human being. What was interesting to me is that what I felt like I was seeing with you, not necessarily how I portrayed it, but what I felt like I was seeing with you in real life was that your feelings for Anna were relatively complex. Yeah. I mean, you could see her for the for the faults that she had, but you still really cared about her as a person and it didn't stop the fact that you had, you know, a sense of humanity that felt for her and what she was going through. And that you could feel sorry for her and also be like, oh, she's done some bad things and she's, you know, has some flaws as a person. So it felt like you you did remain objective in your reporting, but you also did get emotionally invested. And you became really good friends with Todd. I thought that was really interesting because it, you're right. You were no longer reporting on the story. You're done reporting on the story and yet you stayed involved. But you did it in a way that wasn't like you, you know, like you lost yourself or you let go or you went too far. You know, you did seem to keep those boundaries. And I love what you said about the difference between like working at the New York Times and sort of doing narrative journalism, too. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, it's your job is to write what happened. And as long as you are doing that, as long as you're telling the truth about what happened, it doesn't really matter kind of what you're personal feelings are, if that makes any sense. Um, Anna, yeah, I definitely veered between like, I definitely also felt like a sense of responsibility to her in the same way that I did to the other characters where it's like, I feel like when I go into a situation, I'm like kind of like a goofy, non-threatening person. But I, I've kind of come to realize that in fact, like 
you know, you're, you're a little bit scary to people because you're going to record their truth. And, you know, that's going to be a thing that sticks with them for a long time, especially with the internet. So it's just kind of, um, it's a weird relationship that we have with sources. And I think that the show is really honest about that. And, and, uh, it's cool. It's really a neat thing. One of the things that we keep talking about is how unknowable Anna is. And it's one of the things that I felt so strongly while making the series. And I like to say everything about Anna is true until it's not. Um, do you feel like you know her after this entire experience? Okay. So, you know, it's been a roller coaster with Anna because I do like this person. And one of the things that I think is so great about the show is that it really captures the experience of knowing Anna that I had where you're kind of like veering back and forth between like, is this a good person? Is this a bad person? And I'm still kind of in that place with her. Like I, she will have these moments of incredible sweetness and incredible clarity and, and be very reasonable. And then, you know, I will read those long text exchanges with Rachel Williams that are just an absolute horror movie that came out in court. It just is, it's terrifying and it to see that. So it's it's complicated. How did you feel about the I'm not sorry interview she gave after? <laughs> the I'm not sorry interview was so classic, Anna, in that she feels she's being very reasonable and pragmatic and also just like shooting herself in the foot at the same time. What was interesting about that is that she was kind of doing the defense. Like the defense was that to be convicted of grand larceny, you have to prove that somebody intended to defraud somebody, right? So the position that the defense took was Anna didn't intend to defraud people. She intended to pay people back. She intended to make the foundation. She intended to, you know, make everyone whole again. If the people around me had just done the jobs, then the loans would have been approved, my trust would have come through, and now I'd be sitting on Park Avenue instead of here with you. That's a fact. And whether it was true or not, she adamantly swore that that was the case. And so she wasn't sorry. Like, <laughs> she wasn't sorry because she did intend to pay people back. But she was just kind of rudely interrupted by the justice system and people's inability to, uh, <laughs> to withstand pressure, as she put it. Anna says things. <laughs> it's so interesting because when I was writing the story, I think somebody said this like, like Neff or somebody's like, she'll say these things that are like so like outlandish. Like she'll be like, do you know that like it's really easy to get somebody killed? And then you're like, oh, that's just kind of Anna being Anna imparting information that it's actually really easy to get. And then, but I would repeat that to somebody and they'd be like horrified. Like, is she threatening you? Like, oh my God. Like she just says this stuff. <laughs> she doesn't come off the way that she wants to all the time. Anyway, she's a complicated person. I don't really feel like I know her at the end of the day. By the way, like we'll separate out Anna Sorokin, who is a real person, from Anna Delvey. Anna Sorokin is a real person. And I know her a little bit and also not at all. And I think that she will reveal herself or not when she wants to. That's like kind of her story. Anna Delvey is like a character. It's a persona. And I think like at the end of the day, I've kind of settled on that she's like a shapeshifter and she is whatever anybody wants her to be in the moment. 
And that's kind of why it's a little bit difficult to grab a hold of who she is. And being a shapeshifter and, and whoever anybody wants to be, she's kind of like a reflection of whoever she's in front of. So of all of us, really, in some ways. She took on characteristics of mine. She took on characteristics of Neffs and Rachel. Yeah, she's a complicated person. And, but um, she did call me a few times. She's in jail. I don't understand why she is still in jail. Like, she should be deported. I think she's resisting being deported, and that's why she's still in custody. Uh. It's very confusing. So the last time I spoke to her, I was like, why are you still in jail? Like, go home. And she just really wants to stay in the U.S. And that, to me, goes back to my theory of Anna, which is maybe not right at all. And I speak frankly in that the only Anna I've met is through you. I've never actually met Anna. And that was on purpose. But my theory of Anna is the character Anna, who is a reflection of a lot of people who found herself seen here. Do you know what I mean? Like, it is that thing that Vivian says, I will make you famous. The world will know who you are. She is seen here. She is known here. And maybe if she goes home, she's not so known. Maybe it's not as viable for her to leave the country and to go be somebody else. She did come here in pursuit of the American dream and maybe by God, she's going to get it. I don't know. But, you know, people always ask me like, what do you want people to take away from the series? Or what do you think the series is? I don't have an answer for that. I can never tell people what, the, <laughs> what it is I've made. I just hope that we've reflected the characters in a way that feels organic and truthful for the audience. But Anna, Anna's a difficult one. She really is. Yeah. I mean, I did see her when she, so she was out of jail for like a, a month, a few weeks or something like that. I did have dinner with her mm-hmm. and it was nice. <laughs> you know, it was, uh, she put the reservation <laughs> under her name and I had to go say it. And then they kind of gave me a look and it was a little bit weird. But um, <laughs> she had like grand plans. She's She's got several publicists working with her that I've heard from on occasion. We definitely have not seen the last of her, but she needs to get out of jail. It's very strange that she's still in there. Yeah, I think it's strange that she's still in there. And honestly, you know me, I'm on the side of like, everybody else got something out of this and Anna went to jail. So I'm not so sure that that that's fair. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I, I understand that she did something wrong. I get that. But everybody else got something out of this and Anna went to jail. I don't know how I feel about that. It was also the sentence was excessive. Yes. I think the judge said at the sentencing, like, she got four to 12 years, right? And she said she was giving her that long a sentence as a message. I'm not sure exactly what the message was, but it did seem like it was punishment for being a public figure, speaking out, saying you weren't sorry, which is not the crime that she committed, actually. No. She kind of seemed like she was being punished for her behavior during the trial and while she was incarcerated and not for the actual crimes that she did, which at the end of the day, again, all very bad things. But it was like it was like $200,000 maybe, which she paid back. It's, it doesn't actually make any sense. Um, yeah, she's in jail for maximizing her public image in a, in a way. In a lot of ways, you're right. I think that's a lot of it. Yeah, it's a sad thing. I don't know if I answered the question or not. <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't know either. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's complicated. Complicated indeed. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Next week, I'll be back with the real Neff Davis, Anna's hotel concierge friend and confidant. I'm loyal to Anna, but I'm not a dummy. I'm friends with Anna, but I do have boundaries. And most importantly, Anna will never come before my money. If you're enjoying this show, please subscribe, share with your friends, rate, or leave us a review. All of that good stuff. And if you haven't finished Shondaland's Inventing Anna on Netflix, please go do that. We really don't want to spoil it for you. Inventing Anna, the official podcast, is executive produced by Sandy Bailey, Lauren Homan, Tyler Klang, and Gabrielle Collins. Our producer and editor is Nicholas Harder, and the show is produced and hosted by me, Stacey Wilson-Hunt. Inventing Anna, the official podcast, is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.